0: Be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast
1: player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 23 and 24 of Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 23 In which Passapartout's nose becomes outrageously long The next morning Poor, jaded, famished Passapartout said to
0: himself that he must get something to eat at all hazards,
1: and the sooner he did, the better. He might, indeed, sell his watch, but he would have starved
0: first. Now or never he must use the strong, if not melodious voice "'which nature had bestowed upon him. "'He knew several French and English songs "'and resolved to try them upon the Japanese, "'who must be lovers of music, "'since they were forever pounding on their cymbals, "'tam-tams and tambourines, "'and could not but appreciate European talent. "'It was, perhaps rather early in the morning to get up a concert, and the audience prematurely aroused from their slumbers might not possibly pay their entertainer with coin-bearing the Mikado's features. Passapartout therefore decided to wait several hours, and, as he was sauntering along, it occurred to him that he would seem rather too well-dressed for a wandering artist. The idea struck him to change his garments for clothes more in harmony with his project, by which he might also get a little money to satisfy the immediate cravings of hunger. The resolution taken, it remained to carry it out. It was only after a long search that Passapartout discovered the native dealer in old clothes, to whom he applied for an exchange. The man liked the European costume, and ere long Passapartout issued from his shop a in an old Japanese coat and a sort of one-sided turban Faded with long use.
1: A few small pieces of silver, moreover, jingled in his pocket. Good, thought he. I will imagine I am at the carnival. His
0: first care, after being thus japanese was to enter a tea-house of modest appearance, and, upon half a bird, and a little rice, to breakfast like a man for whom dinner was yet a problem to be solved. Now, thought he, when he had eaten heartily, I mustn't lose my head. I can't sell this costume again for one still more Japanese. I must consider how to leave this country of the sun of which I shall not retain the most delightful of memories as quickly as possible. It occurred to him to visit the steamers which were about to leave for America. He would offer himself as a cook or servant in payment of his passage and meals. Once at San Francisco he would find some means of going on. The difficulty was how to traverse the 4,700 miles of the Pacific which lay between Japan and the New World. Passapartout was not the man to let an idea go begging and directed his steps towards the docks, but as he approached them, His project, which at first had seemed so simple, began to grow more and more formidable in his mind. What need would they have of a cook or servant on an American steamer? And what confidence would they put in him, dressed as he was? What references could he give? As he was reflecting in this wise... His eyes fell upon an immense placard, which a sort of clown was carrying through the streets. This placard, which was in English, read as follows. Acrobatic Japanese Troupe, Honourable William Batulcler, Proprietor. Last Representations. Prior to their departure to the United States of the Long Noses, long noses, under the direct patronage of the god Tingu. Great
1: attraction. The United States, said Passapartout, that's just what I want. He
0: followed the clown, and soon found himself once more in the Japanese quarter. A quarter of an hour later, he stopped before a large cabin, adorned with several clusters of streamers, the exterior walls of which were designed to represent, in violet colours and without perspective, a company of jugglers. This was the Honourable William Batulka's establishment. That gentleman was a sort of Barnum, the director of a troop of mountbanks, jugglers, clowns, acrobats, equilibrists and gymnasts, who, according to the placard, was giving his last performances before leaving the Empire of the Sun for the States of the Union. Passapartout entered and asked for Mr. Batulka who straightway appeared in person. "'Who do you want?' said he to Passapartout, whom he at first took for a native.
1: "'Would you like a servant, sir?' asked Passapartout. "'A servant?' cried Mr. Batulka,
0: caressing the thick grey beard which hung from his chin. "'I already have two who are obedient and faithful, have never left me, and serve me for their nourishment, and here they are, added he, holding out his two robust arms, furrowed with veins as large as the
1: strings of a bass viola. So I can be of no use to you? None. The devil... I should so like to cross the Pacific with you.
0: Ah, said the Honourable Mr. Batulka, you are no more a Japanese than I am a monkey. Who are you dressed up in that way? A man dressed as he can.
1: That's true. You are a Frenchman, aren't you? Yes, a Parisian of Paris. Then you ought to know how to make grimaces. Why? replied
0: Passapartout, a little vexed that his nationality should cause this question. We French know how to make grimaces, it is true, but not any better than the Americans
1: do. True. Well, if I can't take you as a servant, I can as a clown. You see, My
0: friend, in France they exhibit foreign clowns, and in foreign parts French clowns. Ah, you are pretty strong, eh? Especially after a good meal. And you can sing? Yes, returned Passapartout, who had formerly been wont to sing in the streets. But can you sing standing on your head? with a top spinning on your left foot and a sabre balanced on your right. Humph, I think so, replied Passapartout, recalling the exercises of his younger days. Well, that's enough, said the Honourable William Batulka. The engagement was concluded there and then. Passapartout had at last found something to do. He was engaged to act in the celebrated Japanese troupe. It was not a very dignified position, but within a week he would be on his way to San Francisco. The performance, so noisily announced by the Honourable Mr. Petulka, was to commence at three o'clock and soon the deafening instruments of Japanese orchestras sounded at the door. Passapartout, though he had not been able to study or rehearse a part, was designated to lend the aid of his sturdy shoulders in the great exhibition of the Human Pyramid, executed by the long
1: noses of the god Tingu. This. Great attraction was to close the performance. Before
0: three o'clock, the large shed was invaded by the spectators, comprising Europeans and natives, Chinese and Japanese, men, women and children, who precipitated themselves upon the narrow benches and into the boxes opposite the stage. The musicians took up a position inside and were vigorously performing on their gongs, tam-tams, flutes, bones, tambourines and immense drums. The performance was much like all acrobatic displays, but it must be confessed that the Japanese are the first equilibrists of the world. One with a fan and some bits of paper, performed the graceful trick of the butterflies and the flowers. Another traced in the air, with the odorous smoke of his pipe, a series of blue words which composed a compliment to the audience, while a third juggled with some lighted candles, which he extinguished successively as they passed his lips and relit again without interrupting for an instant his juggling. Another reproduced the most singular combinations with a spinning top. In his hands the revolving tops seemed to be animated with a life of their own in their interminable whirling. They ran over pipe stems, the edges of sabres, Wires and even hairs stretched across the stage. They turned around on the edges of large glasses, crossed bamboo ladders, dispersed into all the corners, and produced strange musical effects by the combination of their various pitches of tone. The jugglers tossed them in the air threw them like shuttlecocks with wooden battle doors, and yet they kept on spinning. They put them into their pockets and took them out while still whirling as before. It is useless to describe the astonishing performances of the acrobats and gymnasts, the turning on ladders, poles, balls, barrels, etc., was executed with wonderful precision. But the principal attraction was the exhibition of the Long Noses, a show to which Europe is as yet a stranger. The Long Noses form a peculiar company, under the direct patronage of the god Tingu. Attired after the fashion of the Middle Ages, they bore upon their shoulders a splendid pair of wings. But what especially distinguished them was the long noses which were fastened to their faces and the uses which they made of them. These noses were made of bamboo and were five, six and even ten feet long, some straight, others curved. Some ribboned, and some having imitation warts upon them. It was upon these appendages, fixed tightly on their real noses, that they performed their gymnastic exercises. A dozen of these secretaries of Tingu lay flat upon their backs, while others, dressed to represent lightning rods, came and frolicked. On their noses, jumping up from one to another, and performing the most skilful leapings and somersaults. As a last scene, a human pyramid had been announced, in which fifty long noses were to represent the car of Juggernaut. But, instead of forming a pyramid by mounting each other's shoulders, the artists were to group themselves on top of their noses. It happened that the performer who had hitherto formed the base of the car had quitted the troupe, and as, to fill this part, only strength and adroitness were necessary, Passapartout had been chosen to take his place. The poor fellow really felt sad when, melancholy reminisce of his youth he donned his costume adorned with vari-coloured wings and fastened to his natural feature a false nose six feet long but he cheered up when he thought that his nose was winning him something to eat he went upon the stage and took his place beside the rest who were to compose the base of the car of juggernaut. They all stretched themselves on the floor, their noses pointing to the ceiling. A second group of artists disposed themselves on these long appendages, then a third above these, then a fourth, until a human monument reaching to the very chronices of the theatre soon arose on top of the noses. This elicited loud applause, in the midst of which the orchestra was just striking up a deafening air. When the pyramid tottered, the balance was lost. One of the lower noses vanished from the pyramid, and the human monument was shattered like a castle built of cards. It was Passapartout's fault, abandoning his position, clearing the footlights without the aid of his wings, and clambering up to the right-hand gallery. He fell at the feet of one of the spectators, crying, Ah,
1: my master, my master. You here? Myself. Very well. Then let us go to the steamer, young man. Mr. Fogg,
0: Uda, and Passapartout passed through the lobby of the theatre to the outside, where they encountered the honourable Mr. Batulka, furious with rage. He demanded damages for the breakage of the pyramid, and Phileas Fogg appeased him by giving him a handful of banknotes. At half-past six, the very hour of departure, Mr. Fogg and Uda, followed by Passapartout, who in his hurry had retained his wings and his nose six feet
1: long, stepped upon the American steamer. Chapter 24 During which Mr. Fogg and party crossed the
0: Pacific Ocean. What happened when the pilot boat came in sight of Shanghai will be easily guessed. The signal made by the tankardier had been seen by the captain of the Yokohama steamer, who, espying the flag at half-mast, had directed his course towards the little craft. Phileas Fogg, after paying the stipulated price of his passage to John Busby, and rewarding that worthy with the additional sum of five hundred and fifty pounds, ascended the steamer with Uda and Fix, and they started at once for Nagasaki and Yokohama. They reached their destination on the morning of the 14th of November, Phileas Fogg lost no time in going on board the Carnatic, where he learned, to Uda's great delight, and perhaps to his own, though he betrayed no emotion, that Passapartout, a Frenchman, had really arrived on her the day before. The San Francisco steamer was announced to leave that very evening, and it became necessary to find out, if possible, without delay. Mr. Fogg applied in vain to the French and English consult, and, after wandering through the streets a long time, began to despair of finding his missing servant chance or perhaps a kind of presentment. At last, let him into the Honourable Mr. Batulka's theatre. He certainly would not have recognised Passaparte out in the eccentric mountebank's costume, but the latter, lying on his back, perceived his master in the gallery. He could not help staring, which so changed the position of his nose as to bring the pyramid. Pell-mell upon the stage. All this Passapartout learned from Uda, who recounted to him what had taken place on the voyage from Hong Kong to Shanghai on the Tankadier, in company with one Mr. Fix. Passapartout did not change countenance on hearing this name. He thought that the time had not yet arrived to divulge to his master what had taken place between the detective and himself and in the account he gave of his absence he simply excused himself for having been overtaken by drunkness in smoking opium at the tavern in Hong Kong. Mr. Fogg heard this narrative coldly without a word, and then furnished his man with funds, necessary to obtain clothing, more in harmony with his position. Within an hour, the Frenchman had cut off his nose, and parted with his wings, and retained nothing about him, which recalled the sectary of the god Tingu. The steamer, which was about to depart from Yokohama to San Francisco, belonged to the Pacific Mail Steamship Company and was named the General Grant. She was a large paddle wheel steamer of 2,500 tons, well equipped and very fast. The massive walking beam rose and fell above the deck, At one end a piston rod worked up and down, at the other was a connecting rod which, in changing the rectilinear motion to a circular one, was directly connected with the shaft of the paddles. The General Grant was rigid with three masts giving a large capacity for sails and thus materially aiding the steam power. By making twelve miles an hour, she would cross the ocean in twenty-one days. Phileas Fogg was therefore justified in hoping that he would reach San Francisco by the 2nd of December, New York by the 11th, and London on the 20th, thus gaining several hours on the fatal date of the 21st of December. There was a full complement of passengers on board, among them English, many Americans, a large number of coolies on their way to California, and several East Indian officers who were spending their vacation in making the tour of the world. Nothing of moment happened on the voyage. The steamer, sustained on its large paddles, rolled but little, and the Pacific almost justified its name. Mr. Fogg was as calm and taciturn as ever. His young companion felt herself more and more attached to him by other ties than gratitude. His silent but generous nature impressed her more than she thought, and it was almost unconsciously but she yielded to emotions which did not seem to have the least effect upon her protector. Uda took the keenest interest in his plans, and became impatient at any incident which seemed likely to retard his journey. She often chatted with Passapartout, who did not fail to perceive the state of the lady's heart, and Being the most faithful of domestics, he never exhausted his eulogies of Phileas Fogg's honesty, generosity, and devotion. He took pains to calm Uda's doubts of a successful termination of the journey, telling her that the most difficult part of it was past, that now they were beyond the fantastic countries of Japan and China and were fairly on their way to civilized places again. A railway train from San Francisco to New York, and a transatlantic steamer from New York to Liverpool, would doubtless bring them to the end of this impossible journey, round the world within the period agreed upon. On the ninth day, after leaving Yokohama, Phileas Fogg had traversed exactly one half of the terrestrial globe. The General Grant passed, on the 23rd of November, the 180th meridian, and was at the very antipodes of London. Mr. Fogg had, in its true exhausted, 52 of the 80 days in which he had to complete the tour and there were only twenty-eight left. But, though he was not only half-way by the difference of the meridians, he had really gone over two-thirds of the whole journey, for he had been obliged to make long circuits from London to Aden, from Aden to Bombay, from Calcutta to Singapore, and from Singapore to Yokohama could he have followed without deviation the 50th parallel, which is that of London, the whole distance would only have been about 12,000 miles, whereas he would be forced, by the irregular methods of locomotion, to traverse 26,000, of which he had, on the 23rd of November, Accomplished 17,500, and now the course was a straight one, and Fix was no longer there to put obstacles in their way. It happened also, on the 23rd of November, that Passapartout made a joyful discovery. It will be remembered that the obstinate fellow had insisted on keeping his famous family watch at London time, and on regarding that of the countries he had passed as quite false and unreliable. Now, on this day, though he had not changed the hands, he found that his watch exactly agreed with the ship's chronometers, His triumph was hilarious. He would have liked to know what Fix would have said if he were aboard. The rogue told me a lot of stories, repeated Passapartout, about the meridians, the sun and the moon. Moon indeed, moonshine more likely. If one listened to that sort of people... A pretty sort of time would one keep. I was sure that the sun would some day regulate itself by my watch. Passapartout was ignorant that, if the face of his watch had been divided into twenty-four hours, like the Italian clocks, he would have no reason for exultation, for the hands of his watch would then. Instead of as now indicating nine o'clock in the morning, indicate nine o'clock in the evening, that is, the twenty-first hour after midnight, precisely the difference between London time and that of the one hundred and eightieth meridian. But if Fix had been able to explain this purely physical effect, Passapartout would not have admitted, even if he had comprehended it. Moreover, if the detective had been on board at that moment, Passapartout would have joined issue with him on a quite different subject, and in an entirely different manner. Where was Fix at that moment? He was actually on board the General Grant. On Reaching Yokohama The detective, leaving Mr. Fogg, whom he suspected to meet again during the day, had repaired at once the English consulate, where he at last found the warrant of arrest. It had followed him from Bombay, and had come by the Carnatic, on which steamer he himself was supposed to be. Fix's disappointment may be imagined when he reflected that the warrant was now useless. Mr. Fogg had left English ground, and it was now necessary to produce his extradition. Well, thought Fix, after a moment of anger, my warrant is not good here, but it will be in England. The rogue evidently intends to return to his own country thinking he has thrown the police off his track. Good, I will follow him across the Atlantic. As for the money, heaven grant there may be some left, but the fellow has already spent in travelling rewards, trials, bail, elephants and all sorts of charges more than five thousand pounds. Yet. After all, the bank is rich. His course decided on. He went on board the General Grant and was there when Mr. Fogg and Duda arrived. To his utter amazement, he recognised Passapartout, despite his theatrical disguise. He quickly concealed himself in his cabin to avoid an awkward explanation and hoped, thanks to the number of passengers, to remain unperceived by Fogg's servant. On that very day, however, he met Passapart out face to face on the forward deck. The latter, without a word, made a rush at him, grasped him by the throat, and, much to the amusement of a group of Americans, who immediately began to bet on him, administered to the detective a perfect volley of blows, which proved the great superiority of French over English pulgistic
1: skill. When Passapartout had finished, he found himself relieved and comforted. Bix
0: got up in a somewhat rumpled condition, and looking at
1: his adversary, coldly said, Have you done? For the time, yes. Then let me have a word with you. But I, in your master's interests.
0: Passapartout seemed to be vanquished by Fix's coolness, for he quietly followed him, and they sat down aside
1: from the rest of the passengers. You have given me a thrashing, said Fix. Good, I expected it.
0: Now listen to me. Up to this time I have been Mr. Fogg's adversary. I am now in his game. Aha, cried Passepartout. You are convinced he is an honest
1: man? No, replied Fix coldly. I think him a rascal. Shh, don't budge,
0: and let me speak. "'As long as Mr. Fogg was on English ground, "'it was for my interest to detain him there "'until my warrant of arrest arrived. "'I did everything I could to keep him back. "'I sent the Bombay priests after him. "'I got you intoxicated at Hong Kong. "'I separated you from him.' and made him miss the Yokohama steamer. Passapartout listened with closed fists. Now, resumed Fix, Mr. Fogg seems to be going back to England. Well, I will follow him there, but hereafter I will do as much to keep obstacles out of his way as I have done up to this time to put them in his path. I've changed my game, you see, and simply because it was for my interest to change it. Your interest is the same as mine, for it is only in England that you will ascertain whether you are in the service of a criminal or an honest man. Passapartout listened very attentively to Fix, and was convinced that he spoke with entire good
1: faith. Are we friends? asked the detective. Friends? No, replied Passapartout.
0: But allies, perhaps. At the least sign of treason, however, I will twist your neck for you. Agreed, said the detective quietly. Eleven days later, on the 3rd of December... The General Grant entered the bay of the Golden Gate and reached San Francisco.
1: Mr. Fogg had neither gained nor lost a single day.